You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. This episode is a chance for us to get to know Satch Purcell a little bit better, so Carlos will interview Satch. Groovy, baby. Satch Purcell. Yes, Mr. Carlos. Satya. Satya is my real name. It is. Yeah. And Satya, um, it's an interesting story, how I got it. Um, So Satya is Sanskrit for truth. My parents found themselves in India in 1971. And they had accompanied an elderly couple um, that wanted to make a trip to India. And so my parents went along to help them out. And while they were there, they met a guru, an Indian guru, who told them that they were going to have a son and that they should name him Truth. Hmm. And my dad said, uh, oh, I can't name my son Truth. He'll get beat up in school. And uh, then this guru told him to name me Satya, which means Truth. Hmm. And that's how we got the name. So two years later, uh, I was born. And my parents decided to go ahead and give me that name. So uh, that's that's why I am Satya Purcell. But... Um, growing up in the seventies in elementary school, uh, that's a difficult name to have. My friends modified my name based upon various pronunciations they had heard from my parents and they started calling me Satch. And when I moved to a different area, I changed schools. I decided that's who I'm going to be. I'm just going to tell everybody that my name is Satch. And that's why you know me as Satch, even though you know me as Satya. Yeah. That's so cool. I've only seen one other Satch, and it was on a British drama of some kind. Really? Yeah. Oh. I I don't recall the name of it, but I I smiled. Yeah. Like, wow. I have have met so many people that have told me that they've known of others with my name, but I've never met another person with my name. In sixth grade, uh, there was a girl that said that she knew some people that had a dog named Satch. So that was hard to live down for a little while. (laughs) Although you love dogs. I do. I love dogs. And they love you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Me and dogs have a love-love relationship. (laughs) Yeah. So your birth was foretold by a guru. Yeah. And I heard that you grew up with a monkey. Is that true? Are the rumors true? The rumors are true. I was born in a household that already had a monkey. The monkey was older than me. And his name was Willie. He was a capuchin. Uh, and it was interesting to be a baby, to a toddler, to a young child in a house with a monkey, because to me, that was just a normal thing. You know, there's, there's a monkey in the house. Like, right. you know, there's just, a, there's Willie over there. It was neat. Willie actually is responsible for getting me to crawl for the very first time in my life. He would really? uh, get very close to me and he'd tease me and I kept reaching for him and he'd stick his face out at me. And eventually I just like, I've got to get that monkey. And so I started to crawl towards him. And that was the first time I ever crawled was, was from a monkey. Wow. I probably have this monkey to thank for my um, deep need to be a ham and to <laughs> perform because... Uh, I used to do performances for Willie and Willie had a cage in the living room and uh, I would pretend that I was people like Neil Diamond, you know, and I would run down the hall and I would sing into the fan and the fan would cut up my voice. Somehow that 
made me think that that was logical that Neil Diamond would sing into a fan. Of course. And the monkey would scream and, you know, get all excited. He was like a fan. And uh, so I, I got a, I got a taste of what it's like to uh, perform for the monkeys. You know, it was it was fun. How old were you when the monkey passed? Well, I wasn't around when the monkey passed. Um, what had occurred is my parents uh, got divorced, and I was re- relatively young. And my mother and I were living in the house that we all lived in, and my parents sold the house after the divorce. And it is very difficult to get an apartment when you have a monkey. Hmm. So my mom found uh, an elderly couple that had several monkeys and they took our monkey, Willie, and he got to live a full satisfying monkey life with a household that had various other monkeys. Interesting. How old does a capuchin live? You know, I'm not certain. Our our monkey actually had a liver problem, so he was small. Oh. He was smaller than your average monkey. Um, and there's a funny story I have to sh- share about Willie. Um, one day, he uh, was rubbing his eye, and my mom walked past and said, Oh, Willie, honey, is something wrong with your eye? And he just really, you know, um, you know played it up, you know, <laughs> And he put his, put his hand over his eye because he was getting sympathy. Right. And so my mom calls my dad at work and talks about it. And so they were going to take him to the vet. And so my mom walks past him and he switched to the other eye to get his sympathy. <laughs> so monkeys are smart, but not always that smart. Wow. Um, but Willie did have a, a liver problem. And so he was small. And so I, I would assume that, that maybe had an impact on his life. But uh, did he Willie influenced like, me. Did Willie like to hit the bottle? Is that why? He probably did. Yeah, yeah. Well, he did like to sink his teeth into plastic bottles. Oh. Um, he would uh, sneak out of his cage when nobody was home. He'd, he'd find all these clever ways to get out of his cage. And he would go straight to the kitchen, open up all the cupboards, empty all the bags he could empty. It's like a scene out of a movie. Wow. He would pick up every plastic bottle. He loved the feeling of his teeth sinking into a plastic yeah, bottle. And who he'd doesn't? bite it several times, he'd throw it on the ground. And we'd come home and the kitchen would be a disaster. But you got to <laughs> love your monkey. <laughs> wow. Um, you grew up with a Hindu set of values around you, didn't you? You know, I really did. What's that, that was, like? Yeah. As a child, well, when I started school and I, and I started to have peers, I found that to be um, scary and embarrassing. I didn't like it. I, I wanted to be normal. I wanted to be like everybody else. <laughs> um, but my family wasn't normal. You know, um, my name, you know, originated from the prediction of an Indian guru that I was going to be born. And so... I did grow up with a lot of Eastern influences around me. Um, My parents did an amazing job of getting me familiar with the culture and beliefs that surrounded me as a young boy in Southern California in the 70s. But they also taught me about these other ways of thinking, these other ways of looking at the world and seeing things differently. And I remember being a a very young child and watching my dad meditate. Hmm. And I didn't quite understand what he was doing, but I mean, I was, I was very young. So I asked him, what are you you doing, dad? You know, and he said, I'm meditating. Of course, I was probably just annoying him, you know, (laughs) when he was trying to meditate. Just like Willie. 
Yeah, just like Willie, right? And so my dad started to teach me how to meditate, probably to get me to be quiet. Mm. But he sat me down and I crossed my legs and I didn't know what to do and I shut my eyes and he he taught me how to look at my third eye. And that was a very interesting and influential experience that I had. I mean, here I was this young boy in Southern California, like I said, in the 70s, and I was learning how to meditate. It was fascinating. Wow. Um, so both my parents had that kind of background. Um, my dad really got me interested also in martial arts at a young age. That was, mm. that was his vision. And I'm so thankful that my dad did that. I didn't realize he was involved in that part. He was, yeah. My, my dad wanted me to learn Kung Fu. And he signed me up for Shaolin Kung Fu classes. Um, and so when I was a little boy, I went to these Shaolin Kung Fu classes and I learned all these forms and, and I was really gung ho at first. And it was something that my dad and I bonded over. He would take me to all the martial arts movies, Jackie Chan, and we'd watch old Bruce Lee films and cool. And I fell in love with the TV show Kung Fu, of course. And, uh, you know, like, like you, I watched all the old, you know, Kung Fu theater and, and those things had a profound impact on me. And those things are, you know, those movies, um, uh, early martial arts training sort of piqued my curiosity that there are secrets in this universe. Mm. There are methods, hidden things, hidden things. There are ways. And, and those who are wise to the ways, you know, have special mm. gifts. There are special things for those people. And that fascinated me as a child. Um, and so I gravitated towards martial artists. I gravitated towards old stories of, of Hindu characters like Hanuman, you know, the, uh, the, the monkey God, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the special powers that he had. And I, I also gravitated towards Superman. When I was a little boy, I used to uh, put on leotards and my mom would tape S's to all my shirts and I would have a cape <laughs> and I would put it underneath my clothes Right. But I had to leave a little bit of the cape sticking out, you know, just so people would wonder. Accidentally on purpose. Accidentally on purpose. Is that the real Superman? Right. (laughs) And, and I think there was just something that caused me to want to be extraordinary. And it wasn't, I mean, and I didn't have a concept of, you know, being special or having an ego or anything as, as a young child like that. But as I reflect back on it, I think it was just for some reason I had this innate drive to try to be on a quest for excellence. You know, I wanted to um, find out what people were capable of, what I was capable of. And I believed magically that there was a way, you know, that I believed in magic. My dad got me started in meditation. My dad got me involved in martial arts, very practical things. My mom taught me at a young age that people's feelings matter and that the feelings and the suffering of other creatures matter. I remember I got Mexican jumping beans when I was a kid and I didn't really understand what they were. I just had these, these little beans and, and, and if, and I was taught that, you know, if they get warm, if you put them in your hand, they'll start to move around. And I, I thought they were fascinating. 
And then I learned that Mexican jumping beans move because there are small worms inside of the beans. And my mom told me that I came up to her one day and I had my, my eyes were a little bit watery with tears and I was determined. I said, mom, I got to free those worms. And I, I got a pin and I cracked open the, <laughs> the Mexican jumping beans and I freed the worms. Right. <laughs> um, but I was a very imaginative kid. In fact, I was so imaginative that my mom worried about me. Like I really? sometimes couldn't tell the difference between my imagination and reality. And I remember being a little kid and there was these bullies that lived down the street and we called them the pals. Okay. And one day the pals came and they pushed me down. I skinned my hands on the ground and I was really upset that the pals had pushed me down. A couple days later, uh, my mom sees me out on the porch and I'm confronting them with my little pretend cork gun, right? Because I just, I got a gun and I'm going to show them, right? Right. right. <laughs> so, uh, very interesting. I, I was a very imaginative kid, but it really made it hard for me in school. I did not do well in school because I was so in my own imagination with my own fantasies. I literally could not pay attention. I wow. could not pay attention in school. Strangely, with my um, uh, Eastern background growing up, my mom enrolled me in a Lutheran school. So the very first school that I went to was a Lutheran school. And I, I really experienced a, a, an internal clash with that. I didn't know who I was. I had this strange name. I'm where, around all these Christian kids. And, uh, you know, and it, it was very interesting. Where did you go in your mind? I mean, what, what did you find yourself fantasizing about most? <sighs> Flying. <laughs> okay. Um, picking up trains. Um, superpowers. Superpowers. Yeah. Okay. Um, I imagined, um, I spent a lot of my childhood um, on my bicycle in my mind. I spent a lot of time in my childhood um, doing martial arts and kung fu and, mm. and saving the day and being the hero and those types of things, you know. Um, or fishing, you know, I was always thinking about fishing. I love to go fishing. That was something that my dad used to, uh, used to do with me. Uh, we used to go fishing and, uh, uh, my dad was no master fisherman, but it was just something that we started doing. And then I ended up somehow, I don't know how I did this as a kid. I talked my mom into starting to take me to go fishing. So she would take me to this lake and I would go fishing there. And, uh, there was this old Japanese man who used to catch fish after fish after fish. And everybody at the lake would be like, how is this guy catching these fish? What bait is he using? How's he? And so I had a plan. Carlos, I had a plan. <laughs> I wanted to learn how to fish like this guy. And so several trips to the lake, I would manage to get a little closer to where he would set up. A little closer, a little closer. And one magical day, I got to set up my poles right next to him. And I started asking him questions. And he loved it. This old Japanese guy started teaching me how to fish. He would tell me, you know, your pole needs to be at this angle. At the... He started to teach me how to think like a fish. And after several months of training with this, with this old Japanese fisherman, I'm pulling fish out of the lake. And nice. people were coming to me, what are you using, kid? How's this kid catching these fish, right? And I had, I had Jimmy to thank. Jimmy taught me how to fish. He even came over to my house one day and he brought me a machine that, that I could use to tie these Japanese hooks that didn't have eyelets to, 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 put, a, to put a line through. And, wow. and, and I think basically what it comes down to is I realized I was really into bicycles. 
I was really into Kung Fu. I was really into fishing, right? And I realized that at an early age, I began taking an interest in disciplines, in crafts, mm. and they were always about mastery. And I didn't know that yet. Well, you gained skill. I mean, you essentially modeled him, and then you gained a skill that was demonstrable. Yeah, right. And absolutely, you, you got a little closer, a little closer, until you you were totally matching him, and then you you matched his physiology. He probably told you said he taught you how to think, so you're matching yeah. his. Um, you know, his beliefs and values around what it is. And suddenly you could manifest the same skill, the same excellence that he had. That's exactly yeah. what modeling is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and at this point in my life, when I was learning how to fish, um, I had lost interest in my Kung Fu classes, right? Mm. So I wasn't, I wasn't going to Kung Fu classes anymore. It was part of my past. I still loved martial arts, yeah. but you know, we're children and, and, you know, we, we have various interests and we lose interest quickly. Right. Mm. Um, and I remember at one point, he was so proud of me. Jimmy was really proud of me. And I had a bite on my pole. And I ran down there and he, and he yelled out, Go get him, little buddy! <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and I caught this big, gigantic fish. And my name was in the newspaper. It was, it was a big, gigantic rainbow trout. And uh, um, I remember feeling so proud that I made him proud. Nice. And for some reason... I never felt that in school. If I could have felt that in school, I probably would have Mensa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably would. <laughs> I probably would have been a good student. And I was never a good student. You know, I, I had some mild dyslexia and had difficulties being able to tell the difference between particular letters and numbers. And uh, my mom transferred me to the public school system uh, out of the uh, Lutheran school that I was going to. And for me, that was the right thing because the public school system was a little bit better at catching the problems that I was having mm. and putting a plan together to help me overcome that. And they did. And I think one of the most amazing things in my life, like what is the one thing that I overcame as I learned how to read? That would have been like, I, I could so easily have been one of those kids that really honestly just never learned how to read and just had trouble in school and dropped out, you know? Yeah. Thank goodness that didn't happen. Indeed. You know? <laughs> I mean, for a person who had trouble in school, you certainly have uh, your share of uh, college degrees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I went from uh, dyslexic and can't read to uh, two master's degrees and the student loans to prove it. Right. As I often say, right? right. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I fell in love with learning later in life. I didn't realize when I was young that um, I did love to learn, but I loved to learn martial arts. and I loved to learn how to fish. And I loved to learn how to ride a bicycle and, I, you know, those types of things. Skills. Um, yeah, skills. As Napoleon Dynamite would say. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all about the skills. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, a little later in my life... I really got into bicycle riding. And so I got into something that's called, or used to be called, bicycle freestyle. Um, and today people would think of it as the X Games, right? So I, I used to be involved in the precursor to the X Games, which was a bicycle flatland. And so I did bike stunts, you know, on the ground. And again, I got into that in junior high school. And again, that was important to me. That was something I learned. That was a, a new craft for me to master, but it was, certainly wasn't school, you know, and I spent all my time thinking about my bike and mastering these tricks and, but, but never school, you know, it was almost like school had to wait. Somebody hit the pause button on school for me. <laughs> you know? It was, 
<clears throat> having known you since that time, um, mesmerizing watching you do that. I, I loved mm. uh, that period of time after school, but before the classes at, at uh, the martial arts school started. Right, right. Because that's uh, where we met. We met right, at, the, at, at the Kung Fu studio. Exactly. And the listeners yeah. don't necessarily know that till now, but, but we studied yeah. martial arts together and that's how yeah. we met. Yeah, that's right. But I, I used to love to watch you, um, you know, all the tricks, the, the balancing on your bike and spinning around and doing all these crazy backwards, twisting, <laughs> spiraling, circling yeah. actions, you know, where you're flipping yeah. and hopping and bouncing around. It was just really cool to watch. And yeah, oh, <laughs> I was you. bummed that we didn't have enough time. And uh, we never had keep, time. Keep we? doing it. Yeah. I could have watched you doing that for an hour or two. It would yeah, be fun. yeah. That was the, those were fun times. Um, and before bikes, it was breakdancing. Yeah, I was a big time break dancer, you know, and uh, so I realized reflecting back, it just it was just one craft after the next. It was one thing to master after the next, and I'm reminded of Mark Twain's uh, quote, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it. Um, something along the lines of, "Many men fish their entire lives, not realizing it isn't fish thereafter." Huh. Yeah. You know, and that was me. I didn't realize it. I didn't realize what it was that I was after. It was self-mastery. You know, really it was trying to figure out what am I? And um, by mastering these other things, I really was trying to master myself. You come across as a very masterful person because of, um, I think, some of the things that you've had to deal with in life have been, mm. I think, the kinds of things that masters have had to deal with, you know, just heavy, oh, difficult yeah. things sure, that you've had sure. to get through, and yeah. you yeah. you do that. I, I, I don't want to get so heavy, but at the same time, I think yeah. it would be nice to hear a little bit about how you've worked through some of those things, because sure. that's encouraging to people, Yeah, and um, I love to. hearing about it. Okay. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about your mother. I know, I know she struggled a little bit with some, some mental illness. Sure. I, like if you wouldn't mind talking about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, no trouble at all. Um, my mother, bless her heart, um, wonderful person in my life, amazing person an inspiring person. She was, um, completely incapacitated by obsessive compulsive disorder. And she's passed on. My, my, my mother's passed away. She, she died in uh, 2003. Um, and for people that don't have a feeling for what real obsessive compulsive disorder is, um, it, it's become a, a popular thing to talk about how, oh, I'm so OCD. I'm so, yeah, you know. Um, I hear that a lot. Uh, you know, clinical obsessive compulsive disorder is, is totally incapacitating. It, it can get to that point. They're always very intelligent people. They're always very, very smart, very, very capable people. Um, but what's the, the key for OCD is that it is an anxiety disorder. And when somebody has an anxiety disorder like OCD, they pretty much will do anything to prevent themselves from having a panic attack. Because when you have a panic attack, it feels like you're going to die. It feels like, oh my God, this is it. This is death approaching me. And, and, and people will, will do what they have to do to avoid it. And obsessive compulsive disorder, um, the brain, and we did not know this at the time, right? This is, this is something that I learned about later in my studies. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder is a disease where 
there's a particular part of the brain that is involved in allowing you to feel like you have a sense of completion, that you've completed something and that it is okay now to move on to the next thing. That part of the brain um, sort of misfires and it never gives the person a sense of completion. Like there's always an open loop, right? And so if the person does not give in to the feeling, the compulsion that they need to do something, like for example, hand washing, I've washed my hands and my hands are clean. And I know that my hands are clean because I'm a smart, intelligent person. My hands are clean, but my brain is telling me that I'm not finished, even though I know that I'm finished. But the problem is if I don't go back and wash my hands again, I'm going to actually have a serious panic attack. And so that's why people with OCD continue to do what they do. They like, I, I remember seeing a TV show where it was a documentary about obsessive compulsive disorder. There was a guy who, even though he knew that he could not accidentally seal his daughter in an envelope, he had to open up all the envelopes when he was paying his bills just to make sure. Now he knew his daughter could not be in an envelope, but the compulsion the obsession to go and open the envelope to make sure was what he had to do to not have a panic attack. Wow. So growing up with my mom, um, uh, I do have an older sister, uh, my sister, Lori, she's 10 years older than I am. So, um, even though I, I have a, a sister who was older than me, I might as well have been an only child because it was just me and my mom growing up, uh, you know? So my, my sister is, I love my sister. She's amazing, but we didn't spend a lot of time together growing up in the same household. Okay. Um, so my mom and I grew up together and I sort of ended up becoming her rock, you know, her, her sense of stability. And at a very young age, my mother would get um, stuck in the house. She couldn't get out. She'd be washing her hands. She would be counting things constantly. She'd be stuck in the corner of the house. Um, cause she had issues with beginnings and endings. Like she couldn't walk out the front door unless she went and touched the other side of the room before she left, but then it didn't feel right. She would have to go back and touch it 11 times. And then that didn't work anymore. And it had to be, I have to touch it 11 sets of 11, you know? And so, so she would just touch the wall. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. One. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, two. She have to do, so she was always late for work and it was, it was always stressful and I was always late for school because I couldn't get out of the house because my mom was going to drive me and you know what I mean? And so I sort of learned at a young age that, you know, I could say, mom, that's enough. And I would grab her and I'd pull her out the door and she, she would thank me. Thank you for getting me out of that. Like if I, if an wow. outside source gave her permission, she could let it go. Right. But if she was on her own, she couldn't let it go. So. Um, you know, growing up with that, she, she would, um, you know, the anxiety, um, there was always a sense of tension in the home. Right. And now I share this, I share these stories right now. Um, not at all because I want listeners to say, Oh, what a tough life he had. People are naturally going to, going to have those thoughts. The reason I'm sharing this is because, those situations prepared me for things that were to come and I couldn't have appreciated it at the time, but the kind of work that I ended up getting into and the kind of insights I needed to have into people's minds and emotions and, 
and illnesses and things like that. And, and the ability to know that I could have an influence on people's physical health and mental health um, really started with my mom's mental illness and learning that I could influence people. Um, and I think it, it gave me a, a sense of uh, empathy that maybe I wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm. And so those are tools, you know, those, those are tools that, um, um, I think have helped me and I'm thankful for those tools. I wouldn't go back and have a mentally ill mom. I would never, (laughs) you know, recommend that as a strategy. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, we get things in life and, and that's what we have to deal with. You know, what about your father? Um, my dad, um, one of the most, powerful influences on my life, the man who taught me how to meditate fell into having some very, very serious alcohol problems. Very, Mm, very serious. mm. Um, and I think one of the things that I learned about that with my dad is that I, I had to accept that people could simultaneously be fantastic and have lots of flaws at the same time. You know, I mean, here I've got this father who, taught me how to meditate and is getting me involved in martial arts because he knew the value of mastery. And he taught me all kinds of, all kinds of amazing things. My dad was the person who taught me to, um, respect women. My dad was the person who taught me about, you know, um, about having a code of behavior you know, all kinds of amazing things. He taught me how to work hard. My dad taught me all kinds of incredible things, but he'd pick me up and he'd be completely drunk and we'd drive in the car. I remember one time my dad was looking on the road and he says, son, you don't do what I do. I said, well, what's that dad? He said, I don't want you drinking and driving, right? <laughs> As we're on the road, right? So <laughs> I had to realize that, you know, sometimes you got to be your own parents, you know? And, and I had a dad, I love my dad. I, I could take all these wonderful lessons from my dad, but he also taught me that sometimes the best lessons you learn in life are when your role models show you the wrong way to do something. And maybe I was just fortunate that that's the angle that I chose at that young age that, oh, you know, my, my dad is showing me the wrong way to do this. I won't be doing that. You know, he could crash the car and kill us both right now. I was too young to drive. Um, might've been safer if I did drive. Right. But he was simultaneously this incredible guy who had this awful disease and he was very selfish about it, you know, and put me in a lot of danger, put my younger sister. I also have a a younger sister uh, who's about 10 years younger than me and, um, put her in tremendous danger. Um, so, I, I think I developed an understanding of people and ability to accept individuals for their flaws as well as their um, their amazing traits, and I'm thankful for that. And both my parents, because they were incredible and they were they were terribly flawed as well, you know. Um, and uh, it's something that I'd like to see a little more in the world. I would agree with that, yeah. especially you know as I'm hearing you reflect upon that. I'm reflecting. Mm. And thinking about all of the people who I've met who seem to use their upbringing as an excuse for their behavior, who point to their uh, traumatic upbringing and their, their parents who were this way or that way, or, you know, parents who are alcoholics and 
you know, essentially ruin their their lives, or at least that's the way they describe it. Their story yeah. is that that's who they are, and that's where they came from, and therefore that's the way it is. Right. And that it just stops right there. Right. As opposed to creating peace. Yeah. Out of the problem. You know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and 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 I think there's there's and you and I are both aware of this. There's the sort of the cliche version of that. Yeah. And then there's the real deep version of it where you really say, you know what, look it's okay to love my mom and my dad in spite of their, their, their many difficulties and the things that they, that they cause me to experience. You know what I mean? Um, but there's love there and that's real too. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, in relationships and, and in friendships that people have, um, really you and I talk a lot about chunking up. That's, that's a, that's, mm. that's something we talk about on this show. And yep. that's something that I'm, I'm so thankful that you shared that concept with me because <laughs> I use it all the time now, right? Levels of abstraction. Yeah. When yeah. I, I found that when people get caught up in the difficulties of their upbringings and how those difficulties have caused negative occurrences in their lives, um, I think they're, they're chunking down too much. Mm. And you can always chunk up to the point where, yeah, but you know, my dad, even though he put my life in danger, he never made me feel unloved. You know, my dad always made sure that, that I knew how much he cared. And so did my mom. Um, they couldn't get along. <laughs> they couldn't get along for a car ride. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but, but I loved both of them, you know, and they both, taught me valuable lessons. I remember one time I got a bug collecting kit for my, my birthday or Christmas or something. And I was at my grandmother's house and I went out and I had this little pin, like a little piece of wood with a, with a needle on it. And I found a, a roly poly, like a sow bug roly poly. And I, and I stuck the needle through the roly poly mm-hmm. and I was sitting on my grandmother's steps at her mobile home. And I was staring at this, this roly poly bug on this needle and it was alive and its little legs were moving around and I was just looking at it and my dad came up behind me and he said, um, what are you doing? I said, I just kind of showed him what I had, you know, because I thought it was okay because I got this bug collecting kit and it had a needle in it. And I guess that's what you're supposed to do. Stab the bugs. Right. My dad just so calmly said to me, you know, that bug is suffering right now. And I just kind of listened to him. I looked at him. He said, he's feeling pain. And um, we don't want other things to suffer. We don't want to suffer. And we don't want other things to suffer. We need, we need to kill the bug, but we need to do it very fast um, so that we do it a favor because it's suffering right now. Mm-hmm. And that was a very powerful lesson. And we killed the bug. Mm-hmm. And he didn't make me feel shameful about it. He didn't, you know... Um, make me feel guilty or anything like that. He just taught me a lesson. We don't want other things to suffer, you know? Um, and somehow my parents did this amazing job of being a guru to me as mm. I, as I grew up. Yeah. They couldn't do it for themselves or with each other, mm. you know, but somehow they, they gave me that, that gift. I would love to hear about your marriage to Tanya. Sure. My, my favorite topic on planet Earth. Yeah. 
Uh, so I married uh, an incredible person. Uh, my wife, Tanya, she's a gorgeous Sri Lankan with gigantic eyes. Mm-hmm. I always tell her that she looks like the uh, classical paintings of um, Indian ladies on Indian temples, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so Tanya, I was mesmerized by her when we met, um, and early in our, our relationship when we were dating, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So multiple sclerosis is a uh, chronic degenerative neurological disease where the immune system attacks, um, the covering on the nerves in the brain and spinal cord. So, uh, at first I felt kind of ripped off. We both did, you know, that we, we, we met and I, I, you know, finally met the one and I knew it. Oh boy. You know, when she showed an interest in me, I thought this girl is like way out of my league and she's actually interested. I don't know what's going on here. Right. <laughs> and, and so uh, we just, you know, hit it off. It was, it was amazing. And, uh, and you knew us early on when, when, when we were yep, dating, um, I did. you and I had reconnected shortly after that time, a couple years into that. Um, and, uh, so Tanya, uh, has multiple sclerosis. And so she has, um, you know, unfortunately her body, um, has really broken down, you know, and she currently as, as we're recording this and having this conversation, um, she's nearly quadriplegic. Um, she spends her days either in bed or in a wheelchair and, and, uh, uh, life's difficult for her. It's difficult for both of us. Um, but, my, my upbringing and I think my training as an acupuncturist and my training as an occupational therapist gave me the skills that I needed to be able to, to handle the situation. Right. Mm. Um, uh, it has not been easy, you know, but I feel very fortunate that my particular training has given me skills that, that I can use to give Tanya a better life. Hmm. And, you know, sometimes people will say, you know, Hey Satch, you know, it's pretty cool that you stayed with her. And, you know, and, 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 and I always appreciate the things that the nice things that people say that, that, that recognize, you know, those types of sacrifices. But my typical reply to them is, yeah, but if the tables were, were turned and I was the one who was ill and she was the one who was healthy, she'd probably do an even better job taking care of me. And so I, I like to use perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that, one of the angles that I use in my own philosophy, you know, I'm, I'm a big lover of wisdom. I've always sought out wisdom. And one of the things that's, that's helped me gain more wisdom is understanding that, that space shapes, angles can help us create tangible solutions to mental things that we would normally not be able to find solutions for. Hmm. Right. So for example, um, Tanya has this disease. I'm her primary caregiver. At the end of a long day, I come home and let's face it, we got to change diapers and lift up another person and, and deal with pain and and dizziness and nausea and vomiting in the car and Mm -hmm. hospital trips and, you know, uh, over holidays and these kinds of things. Right. But when I say, yeah, but if the tables were turned, she would do a better job for me. That's a spatial solution to the problem. Hmm. You see what I mean? Create space. Yeah. I've used space, right? What did I do? Um, 
this is not an equation that goes in one direction. This is not a north to south relationship. Mm. We can, in our minds, flip it. You know, north and south just turned. You know, what if I was the one? You know? Mm-hmm. And then every time I have, you know, a difficult moment or a difficult day and I feel overwhelmed with, you know, my, my energy is running low, um, you know, I'm tired and, and I'm maybe having compassion fatigue, you know, compassion fatigue is something that caregivers have to deal with. Um, all I have to do is flip the script and say, what if I was the one, you know, she'd do so much better than me. Or what if I wasn't here? What if she had to face this problem by herself, you know, and I, and I take a moment and I imagine that have a little negative fantasy, so to speak, to say, what if she was by herself and living in a, a nursing home someplace, not getting the kind of care that I could give her? And I become overwhelmed with compassion. I think I cannot let that happen. Thank goodness she didn't have to come and come into this life and face that by herself, you know? And so I, I always f- try to find ways to take something that is difficult or negative and take the energy in that because to feel negative requires energy, right? If I'm going to feel sorry for myself, I have to spend energy feeling sorry for myself. That saps energy for sure. Yeah. If, if I'm feeling depressed, that's okay sometimes, but depression sucks energy like nobody's business, right? I sometimes get angry. Sometimes anger is the only way I can find enough energy to pick her up and put her on the toilet. I got to get a little angry to pick Mm -hmm. her up and put her on the toilet, right? Mm -hmm. But, ooh, look at that. There's power in anger. I'm going to use the anger to get the job done, and I'm going to do my best not to take it out on her. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? So, So what I try to do is identify that there is energy in those emotions, and I can take that same battery pack... And I can use that energy to charge a different emotion that's more pleasant, right? So if I feel um, tremendous compassion for what if she was alone, right? Then I can use that energy to get myself out of, oh, poor me. It's been a long day and I came home. I don't have the energy to do this. I'm tired. I'm overwhelmed. But wait a minute. There's a new source of energy to start to change that and not feel that way. You know what I mean? So, um, resourceful Satch. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, you know, if, if there's one thing that I would like to share in our journeys together, you and I on this, this show is, um, is to talk about those things for people. You know, uh, I, I have the technical background to take care of people just for my, my actual professional training, which I'm, I'm thankful for. And then the personal experience of having tried these things out and, uh, I think it would be a lot of fun sometime to really get into that and, and, and share those strategies with people that could use them. Oh yeah. That's, that's a great gift that you're sharing. Mm-hmm. I mean, all that experience and, and all that, that, uh, turning of difficulty into lessons, into resources, uh, people, people can benefit from that. I've benefited from it. So I'm, I'm glad that we have this show because, um, it means that we get a chance to explore those things and, and, um, hopefully share some of all that wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's, what's the point of having it if we can't share it with people? Yeah.
One of the things that that we do together, yes, is run. We do. We're we a couple of runners, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. What what uh, what drew you into being a runner? To being a runner, and, and what specifically about it was? I hated running my whole life. I can relate hated to that. it. I never liked running. It was painful. It was boring. It was. <laughs> I hated running. And I have my wonderful wife, Tanya, to thank for me becoming a runner. Um, she noticed an interesting curiosity that arose in me during an interview that we saw on television of, uh, about um, a book on running. And she secretly got me the book. <laughs> and I read the book and... It taught me the value of running naturally, running the right way, and that running can be a virtue. And I just started running on my own, trying it out, and something happened. I fell in love with it, right? And I ran by myself for like a couple of years. I never never ran with a partner. And then uh, you and I somehow started having a conversation about exercise and running, and Something about it, I guess, struck a chord in you too. And we started running together. And uh, I sort of think we've kind of built a tribe around running. You know, a, a lot of our, our very close friends, you know, we all run together, you know. Yeah. And, and you told me once, you know, we were out on a run and, and we run at night in the dark on trails, no flashlights. That's the way we roll. That's the right? way we roll. And I remember one day you said to me, yeah, this for us is church. Like, yeah, it is, you know, our church is a night sky. Definitely. Know? The congregation is the plants and the crickets and the frogs and the coyotes and the skunks, you know, <laughs> that's kind of what it's like out there. The running that, that we do, um, feels like a sacred experience. And, um, when we're sharing it, uh, we go into a sacred space because we of do. all the trust and, and um, authenticity that we yeah, share. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this show was born while we were running. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you and I have practiced. We didn't know it at the time, but every time we get together and run, we just have these great conversations, these incredible conversations. Then our friends join us, and they're involved in these great conversations. And and one day, you and I just got this idea that you know. I think you had said to me, um, we were having a great conversation hmm. and you said to me, you know, people would love to hear this. And it just like the light bulb went off. We're like, yeah. let's do a podcast. Let's record these conversations and let's allow the world to join us. Yeah. It's amazing what comes of, um, being mindful and centered as you experience other things. You know, the flow state that happens from yeah. being very present in your experience rather than scattered. Yes. Um, which brings me to the concept of Vipassana okay. meditation, which is something that, that we share um, because I think we've, we've even discussed Vipassana while running. Yeah. Um, and, and it immediately puts you into a Vipassana-like state. It does. And, and, and we're using a, a jargon here. But um, I'm going to ask you in a moment about that. Um, but I just wanted to say before we do that, that um, 
there's something about what we do, which seems to always be looking for a universal principle behind it or yeah. uh, a thread of commonality or truth that yes. exists, that weaves it together and stitches it all together somehow. Yeah. Something that we've dubbed authentic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so back to the concept of Vipassana, um, could you explain for the listeners what Vipassana means and how you got into it, what drew you to it? Um, what you like about it. Yeah. So Vipassana meditation is a traditional Buddhist style meditation. The word Vipassana means seeing things as they really are. It's no coincidence to me that I've done Vipassana, you've done Vipassana, our sound engineer Oliver has done Vipassana. Um, what are the chances of that, that all three of us have done Vipassana meditation? We're Vipassanators. Yeah, Vipassanators. Um so Vipassana meditation, um, the tradition that we all did was founded by, uh, a gentleman, uh, named SN Goenka who passed away not too long ago, you know, a year or two ago, I believe mm-hmm. he, he passed away. Yep. Uh, it's a wonderful organization. They, they do 10 day meditation courses and Vipassana basically teaches you how to observe yourself. It sort of gives you a a method for observing oneself so that you can really see the reality of what you are. Um, and what I like about it is it starts at the level of the body. You know, you, you, you concentrate your mind and then you turn that microscope onto your body to understand your own nature. And I loved it. You know, um, the way I found Vipassana meditation is my wife, Tanya is Sri Lankan. And in Sri Lanka, um, Theravada Buddhism, which is sort of orthodox Buddhism, uh, is the predominant practice of, of that country. And my wife and her family naturally have Buddhist ties and Buddhist roots. And we had a family friend who had done this same course. And one day he was visiting from out of the country. Um, he had come for our wedding when Tanya and I got, got married, um, he had attended the wedding and we went to visit him in the hotel he was staying in after the wedding. And he started talking about Vipassana. And I remember he looked at me and he said, Oh, Vipassana meditation. It'll it'll give you 10 years of peace. I remember he (laughs) said that to me. I remember thinking, I have to do that. And we didn't do it right away. Um, It was a little bit complicated because um, uh, Tanya, you know, I was in school for a while. And then, and then when Tanya's MS started to give her some trouble, and she was using a wheelchair, um, it was difficult to go for a meditation course with somebody in a wheelchair because the men and the women are on separate sides of the meditation hall. And, and so we had to wait until we found somebody who was a former meditator who had done the course who could serve as her sort of assistant, her sort of caregiver during the course. And so we did our first course together. And I really have Tanya to thank for that too. So she sort of helped open the door for me to have one of the very important tools that I need for her and I to, uh, find some peace, you know? <laughs> yeah. Didn't you have one of your anniversaries during a Vipassana retreat at one point? We did. In fact, That's so cool. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, the very first course that we did, uh, actually was in 2007. And, uh, for a Vipassana course, you're silent for nine of the 10 days. And on, on the day that we broke silence, I was able to walk over and speak with Tanya for the first time and it was my birthday. 
Oh, that's so yeah, cool. It was, it was January 28th and it was, it was my birthday and I walked up to her and we spoke to each other and I said, and she said, happy birthday. I said, this is the best birthday present I've ever had, you know, to come out of Vipassana meditation and, and be in that amazing state. Then, um, I did another course on my own and then later on she did a course and I was a server on that course. And her health had deteriorated some by, by that time. And by me being um, a server on the course, I worked in the kitchen, uh, it gave me an opportunity to sort of observe from afar, to sort of supervise, make sure everything's okay, did she need anything? And so it was on that trip that we had one of our wedding anniversaries. And I made her a special cup of chai, some delicious tea. And I had one of the ladies, because I couldn't go speak to her or anything. And one of the ladies had walked over there and set it on front of her table. And, and when Tanya saw the chai, she knew it was from that you. that was my anniversary <laughs> present to her. You know, so we talked about that later when that the course is over. so yeah, cute. Yeah. So that was nice. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, you, you um, just being you and Tanya just being her and, and knowing you guys has been a, um, a very heartwarming, beautiful experience for me ever since, you know, I saw you two together, the, mm. you know, the glow of love and, you know, deep resonance in my own heart and appreciation for how beautiful that is. Always has been such a great, uh, inspiring, wonderful thing that, that very often brings tears to my eyes because it's just so awesome to oh, be able to witness that. Thank you. Um, so yeah. Thank you. I, yeah. I really, I love you guys. Oh gosh. We love you too. And, uh, um, you know, it's a fun journey all of us are having. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. The show is produced by Oliver Altine. That's me. Our theme music is composed by Oliver Altine. That's me. Make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Android Market, Stitcher Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Facebook, of course. Thank you for listening, and have an authentic day.